Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, yo, what's good? Check it out. This is your boy, Elder Sensei. One half of the legendary artifacts. You are right now in tune to my man, Tim Einenkel, at the library on rapstation.com. Let's get it popping, y'all. Artifacts. Peace, Elder Sensei. I'm out. Still drunk from last night, I woke up in a lawn chair. I feel faint like an old ass flashlight. I don't remember how I got there. Waiting at the train stop, hoping that hey, the you know what? Go ahead and start recording. This is important. I can't even grow a beard. I've tried. <laughs> and it just doesn't it doesn't work. That's why, you know, people are always like, why do you got a soul pack? Like, well, I can't grow a beard. Like, this is as close as it gets. I can grow hair there, but it's just as patchy. And it just looks like uh, looks like I'm sick. Oh, shit. So, this uh, I had I a mustache once for about a, I don't know for, for about a year. I rocked a mustache and a ponytail. And everybody thought I looked like ants. I might have passed out at the airport bar. Everybody want to see a falling star. I might have thrown up in a rental car. I might have woke up in a reservoir. I might have got robbed at right. Hardy Grove. I'm good. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about something you said during uh, that, that documentary, Adult Rappers. That's cool. Yeah, we can talk about that. What I, what I thought about when I watched the documentary and, then I, and I saw your part and even everyone else's part, there's a moment where rock and rollers, right, they could be a quote-unquote old, right? And then sure. rappers are not supposed to get old. Or if they do, they just stop doing what they love to do. Uh, I guess for you... Was there a moment where, well, when you had a, like you, there was that realization? Well, no, I, I can't. Like you said, like you have to grow up. But was there ever concern that, like, oh crap, I'm gonna have to grow up, and financially, I might be screwed because I don't have that audience? Or did you know that audience would go with you? Oh, of course, I didn't know that the audience would go with me. But, but here's the thing, man. I don't know if I can fit into the standard bucket here because it's, the truth is. I quit rapping right. out of frustration, but it happened before anybody even heard about who I was. You know what I mean? Like I quit a long time ago. And after I quit, then people started paying attention. I quit. I was probably about 26 or 27 when I was like, man, I'm not doing this. I'm going to, I'm going to go figure something else out. And the minute I started putting my energy into figuring something else out and treating rap as going back to just treating it as a hobby is when it took off. Mm. And so, you know, we had started rhyme stairs and it was like after overcast came out and we were just playing local shows and it was fun and dandy and good, but I stopped trying to obtain that LL cool J idea of what being a rapper was. You know what I'm saying? I stopped, uh, you know, all my heroes, I stopped trying to obtain that, that thing that they had and just started, I went back to just doing it for the free beer. Right, and when when I did that, it's almost as if the weight was lifted off of me to become something, and that's when I actually could loosen into it and just instead of becoming something, I let that something become me. If that makes any sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it God, it sounds really hippie-ish to say it like that, but I don't really know how else to say it, you know. And everybody that knows me probably remembers when I was like, man, nah. I'm cool. I'm not, I'm not going to Scribble Jam. I didn't go to Scribble Jam with them dudes. You know, I was like, ah, I'm not doing these things. And then after all that, then people started going, hey, I'll pay you to come play a show in Dallas. Hey, I'll pay you to come to Chicago. And so then I was like, well, yeah, I'll come down there for the weekend. They're going to give me 200 bucks to come and rap. 
Plus yeah. cover my my travel expenses. Yeah. Well, why why wouldn't I do that on the weekend? I got the I got the weekend off anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's like when I when that happened for me is when suddenly everything opened up for me. You know, and it's crazy because I was older than most of my peers by about five years. You know, I think I'm older than like. You know, if you look at, like, the peer group I was in in the late 90s, the, the LPs and the Merces and the Aesop Rocks and the Sage Francis's, and, uh, I was a little bit older than them dudes. Mm. I didn't act like it. <laughs> but, but uh, and so, you know, I was the, the, the result of somebody who had already given up and retired. You know, it's funny. Me and Anthony have this joke right now about, especially about this record being called Fishing Blues. We're just waiting for somebody to go, hey, so what does this mean? Are you going to retire soon? <laughs> so I can zing them with this this joke that I'm not going to give you right now because I'm giving you tons of other just quality shit. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to save this. I'm going to save this for when uh, when Spin Magazine calls. That's a joke. <laughs> I can't believe it. OK, anyway, anyway, um, I, I made those financial decisions prior to rap clicking. I got myself into a good job um, with, with, with a ceiling that I could continue to bust through. And I, and I was going to end up in sales, working for commission uh, and, and, and just stacking chips, you know, and I'm, I was good at it. You know, if I wasn't, I always tell people, if I wasn't rapping right now, I would either be in sales somewhere or I would just drive a truck for a living because I love both of those things. I love talking people into stupid shit. And I also love being in a vehicle on the road with nobody looking over my shoulder, no boss, just me in the radio. So I could put it on the classic rock station and do my best Eddie better and just roll. You know what I mean? Like, and so I was, I was like, whatever. So when it did click, it was like, Oh, well, you know what? I'll ride this until the wheels fall off and then I'll go do what I'm really supposed to be doing. And the wheels haven't fell off yet. Now, you know, I've been able to set up, a situation for myself, especially like financially, but also uh, just as a personal reward, I probably will be somewhat involved in this for the rest of my life. Even if it's not me on the stage rapping, I'm going to stay involved in this music and this culture for better, or for worse forever. You know, even if it's not necessarily my paycheck, it's just that I've wed, I've gotten my, I'm in the book now I'm in the book. So so, so now here I am. So even if I do go to drive in a truck, I'll probably still will remain some sort of uh, advocate and participant in, in, in this, whether it be as a managerial or, 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 or artist development or, man, maybe I could drive the tour bus. You know, I could squish the two worlds together. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just I, I love it that much, you know, but, but I was able to love it because it was gifted to me. It was given to me after I'd already given up on it. So now I was able to, to meet it in a manner that just allowed me to really kind of focus on me and what I wanted, which ultimately allowed me to give a lot of focus. And I saw as being potentially productive for myself as well as the people around me and, and how I could, you know, reach this place where I'm at now where I kind of feel like I want to give back or I want to, you know, it's just, I've been able to have a very, very open, honest relationship with my career, with my music, with my friends and with my audience, you know, and I'm, man, you know, it goes up saying like, I'm super grateful and fortunate because I watch a lot of my contemporaries and they don't get to have necessarily that same relationship with this. You know, I watch a lot of people go through a lot of frustration. I watch a lot of people really struggle through this. And it's like, it's not that I don't struggle as well, but my struggle is, is, is from a, I'm, I get to see it from a perspective of somebody who really, really feels lucky to be here. I uh, was speaking with Slug from Atmosphere's new albums, uh, the new album is Fishing Blues. And I want to talk about the album, but since we're talking, you know, you, you talked about Rhymes there. So is there, was there in 1995, was there for you a business plan on this? And then how did you know, I, I guess, how many years were you willing to put in before you... You know, if it wasn't successful, it'd be like, all right, I got to leave. And then, you know, and now that it is now, it's now it's 21 years later. How did you know, I guess, is there now, is there a business plan or is there a different goal with Rhyme Savers? Mm. You know, that's a question. It kind of goes back to what I was speaking on before, where I had made that choice to leave years ago. So once I got back in, it was like, well, I'll just kind of continue to go wherever it'll take me. And that turned into going everywhere. And now... I don't think there ever is a 
choice of leaving. You know, I was talking to Ann about this the other day. I was like, hey, you know, at some point, our bodies are just not going to be able to do this tour thing, you know? And, right. and he's like, yeah, I, I get that. And, and but, but what does that mean for us? And I think it still means we're still going to hang out and make music. It just means nobody might care, you know? And, and, and so what? Because I think at, at the core of it, when we, when we are creating music, it is about that moment of making it, you know, we're, we don't necessarily consider if people will hear it or if people will like it until way after the fact. But when we're making it, it is just about this moment of trying to impress each other. I'm just trying to make him laugh or trying to make him smile or trying to make him, you know, make that face and go, Ooh, like he just smelled something really bad. <laughs> and, uh, and so I guess, I don't know. I don't know if there is a, if there is a um, contingency for that anymore. I, I feel it's like, it's, it's too late for that. Mm. You know, I think there was maybe a time somewhere in the in the middle of the 2000s where I uh I started to get nervous and and really worry about like long-term finances and things of that nature because there was a lot of money pouring in and I didn't know what to do with it my parents didn't do money right you know what I'm saying nobody taught my parents how to do it their parents didn't do it so nobody taught me how to do it so when money started coming I was you know I mean, man, I was, I was poor rich. You know what I'm saying? Like I was buying the bar for everybody. I was spending money. I was taking trips. I was flying people around. I was, I was just spending it because it was new to me. And somewhere in there, you know, uh, coupled with a a few tragic events that happened uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, a, a few just like soul searching moments it all came together. I, I, I had this, this realization that it's okay. Everything's going to be okay. I just got to, you know, I just got to stay productive, stay positive, and just also tighten up what it is that I'm doing. You know what I mean? And I think that's the kind of clarity that would come to most anybody in my situation. It, it also helped that I was trying to clear my mind of, of booze and drugs and everything all at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like things in life, the arrows of life were pointing me in certain directions. And so once I started following those arrows and going towards that, the results themselves started stepping towards me as well. I think there's like a, there's an old bumper sticker that says something like that. If you take if you take a, one step towards it, it takes two steps towards you or something like it was, it was kind of similar to that, you know, right. not necessarily in a religious way or in a, um, recovery way but just just the universe itself man when i started paying more attention to the energies that i was putting into the universe it's almost as though the universe started going okay i'm going to put these energies back to you you know and, and it helped me straighten out a lot of my stuff and, 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 and at which point once i crossed that line it was like well there is no going back hmm. you know like even if i do end up going back to school let's say and, and, and deciding to go be a teacher. I want to go to school so I can be a, I don't know, get my doctorate or be a teacher or be a professor. Who knows what, what could I ever teach a kid? I don't know. But <laughs> this is always going to be a part of who I am. And I'm going to continue to advocate and, and work for this culture regardless. Uh, you've talked about in interviews regarding the album uh, Fishing Blues that you, you kind of, you know, someone asked you about the fishing comparison. Uh, and you talked about it's similar to fishing because what you're doing is providing for your families and it's also also become a recreational sport for you guys. Uh, but if you think about work in general, whether it's what you do or what Joe Schmo does, right? There's a pressure, there's an extra pressure to it, especially when you're providing for families for you. Does that pressure motivate you in your art or, I mean, or, or do you ever get like, or does it maybe create like writer's block for you because there's, you're putting maybe so much pressure on yourself? Um, I would say more of the motivational side, the inspirational side, you know, as far as obtaining resources, the majority of those resources come from touring. And so there's a interesting kind of love hate situation there where it's like, well, I miss my family because I'm providing for my family. I have to leave my family in order to provide for my family, you know? So that doesn't really make its way into the songwriting necessarily. The songwriting and the, so I, I've never really suffered from writer's block, ever. I think I, you could accuse me of suffering from inability to 
you know, come up with some new ideas to write about, or you could accuse me of suffering from maybe uh, wearing blinders. And, you know, I, I come up with a topic and I just run straight towards that topic now. You know what I mean? Like this, I still have my flaws when it comes to writing and I still have my, my challenges and, and things that I'm trying to learn, but I've never really had the thing where I sit down and I just can't write, you know, um, I've had moments where I don't have time to sit down and write because I'm juggling family stuff or juggling atmosphere stuff on the, on the business side. But yeah, I, I've never felt like under the weight of responsibility, I can't write a song, but I have felt under the weight of responsibility. I want to call in sick today, but I can't. Right. I don't have the luxury of being able to call in sick. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to cut my hand off if I want to not go on stage today, you know? And, you know, maybe I've considered that. I don't know. But, 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 but besides, you know, I, I don't feel like, I don't necessarily feel I've ever, I guess what you're saying is the results of the work, has it ever hindered the work? Yes. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I feel like in, in that way, I'm probably fortunate as well. Now, there is a love-hate relationship with it because once you become dependent on anything, whether you're dependent on being a rapper, rapping, hitting stage, dependent on your job, dependent on your parents, dependent on anything that you're dependent on, you're also going to learn to resent because that's kind of that's the root of dependency. And so, yeah, there's definitely places and areas where I've resented the fact that I have to get on a flight to leave Europe when when my 11-year-old just broke his arm back home, you know, things of that nature, where it's like, I want to be there for him, but I can't, like, call Europe and be like, hey, Europe, uh, my kid broke his arm. I can't come. So, sorry. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I, I was never in that position. You know, I know maybe if I'd have made a ton more money, I wouldn't have had to have worried about that. And maybe I could have called Europe. I don't even have Europe's phone number to be honest, but maybe I could have called Europe and be like, yeah, I can't come, you know, but I, I just, we never made so much money that I could just totally ignore money. Right. You don't have a, like a, you don't have a sick day, right? I mean, you know, basic right. nine to five jobs have sick days and you can't do that. Um, but it's crazy though, because like, let's say a, a nine to five job, a sick day could get you fired. You could be like, look, I can't come. And they could be like, look, you're all out of sick days. And it's like, look, I can't come. Look, if you don't come, we're going to find somebody else to do this for you. Right. Whereas in my place, a sick day just means, well, then you're not getting this money. Right. Or you're going to lose some fans. But you're not going to lose your job. So it's it's a crazy comparison. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because it's like, ultimately, I won't get fired for having a sick day. I might piss off an audience. I might piss off a promoter. Um, and you know, I might lose a good chunk of money, you know what I'm saying? But, but, and so it's, it's, it's crazy to have to navigate that because, you know, you know, in a way life was easier when I was driving trucks and I could just call in sick, but it wasn't better. Life wasn't better. It just was easier. I actually have a quick question and I don't, I'm trying to ask this question in a way that I'm not trying to like belittle the album and general album making process in general versus the mixtape process because it seems like artists have to have a different uh, like you're mentioning a, fi a different approach financially right like you're going on tour to make money and have you i guess my question is have you are you as you've gotten older and as you've been in this business longer do you have to approach an album making process as if you might approach like the mixtape back in the day where you're really just getting your music out there so people know you're still doing stuff or you know, you... we talk. We, we talk about this. We we discuss this because me and Anthony are both. You know, we we realize the amount of time and effort that we put into a project compared to the amount and time and effort that we that that maybe uh, uh, the, the times dictates gets put into a project. It's a different thing now. But we're old and we grew up making albums, right. and so it's hard to break out of that mind state. You know, with this current album, in a way, I was trying to break out of a certain mind state that comes with that. And that is, you know, we would have a tendency to take our music super serious because we were born from an era of rap that did take itself very serious. And that informed me and that helped create who I am as an MC. 
And then as I got older, I became even more serious. And it's like every song has to have some sort of point. It's like I'm trying to save the world here, you know, blah. Whereas I'm trying to learn how to get back to like going, you know what, sometimes it can just be for fun. And I don't want to like compare that to the mixtape world, but in a way it took some of the pressure off um, some of the actual songwriting in, in, in a sense, not, not, I don't want to say songwriting cause I don't want to belittle those songs either, but it, it took the pressure off uh, like how serious something has to take itself. Like I feel like in a way uh, my writing became like almost like self-aware I'm aware that I'm writing. My writing is aware of itself and it has to, you know, and on the Southsiders record, I, I kind of feel like I just finally was starting to get back in touch with a side of myself with a little bit of sarcasm and a little bit of the making fun of the fact that my songs are self-aware instead of making those self-aware songs like, uh, giving them too much power, figuring out how to take the power away from that so that my relationship with them can be a little bit more natural. Cause I feel like it reached a point where, especially like on the family side, I was so full of the feels. I was so in this world of being a new father again and, and uh, uh, entering marriage and, and, and all of these things that made me feel like every song has to be just the most serious thing in the world. And I think I might've burnt out a side, a, pe a part of myself that, that was just like, oh, I just, it was like, almost like, oh my God, I got to go find a, a way to contribute to society in a meaningful way. When there's a part of me that just kind of wants to kick it and, and be stupid and crack jokes, you know what I mean? And so I feel like Southsiders, I started to figure it out again, not fully, but here, Fishing Blues, getting a little closer. And ultimately, you know, the goal is to just be very well-rounded. And when I say well-rounded, I don't mean necessarily in style you're never going to hear me try to flip the styles that the kids are doing because that would be a little disingenuous but well-rounded as just a human well-rounded i want to be as well-rounded on the mic as i am in 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 life in, in person you know like you're, you're talking to me right now and you might hear me crack dumb little jokes and and you know the, all that silly self-deprecating stuff that people used to say about me it's all there because it's part of who i am but the records weren't necessarily reflecting that for a little while uh and now I feel like we're starting to get back to reflecting those sides, which is beautiful because so is Anthony. Anthony right. is reflecting more sides of himself as well inside of the music. And, and so it's, it's almost like both of us were really, we really got to a place and who knows why, you know, why does art become a caricature of itself? Why, why does it become self-aware? You know, well, it's because you go through things. Life is a struggle, and so you try to reflect those struggles. But if that's all you're pushing out is, is, and talking about is the struggles of life, then when, when do we get to have a barbecue? Right. But for you, you know? like, what, what, what is – and not to, uh, not, 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 not to uh, be a Debbie Downer and talk about a serious track on the album. But, you know, for, for example, Pure Evil, right? You address yeah. police brutality, and you do it from a view, a point of view of a police officer. Um, yeah. So for you, what is that breaking point where you're like, all right, this is, I can't, I have to talk about this. I can't just, you know, I want, I don't want to, but I have to. Like, what is that breaking point for you to write a song like I mean, You never know. You know what I'm saying? Like, that song is a song I've been trying to write for, like, a long time. In fact, I touched off on that in on a song on Lucy Ford. I touched off on it uh, on a song, uh, uh, there's a song called Less One that we put out uh, on Sad Clown 12, one of the Sad Clowns. Um, you know, I've touched on the concept of, of uh, police brutality or uh, police corruption or, you know, I, I because it's, it's relevant to my life, it's relevant to my city. My city has always had a problem, much like most of the cities in this country. It all depends on how you fit into my spectrum From lectures to handcuffs to beatdowns to death wish I was told to tell a one-sided story And that's why I had to eliminate your perspective I was afraid for my death I had to make an assessment Ain't my day to be checked I felt the weight on my chest I was told to tell a one-sided story So say a prayer, cause this one's gone to heaven Innocence is a submissive position To be honest, it's that song in particular, story. Pure Evil I was having a conversation with a friend about a year ago and he we were talking about 
the situation, uh, we were actually talking about the Mike Brown thing. And he had said a line. He said this line about, he was like, it's like these cops are trained now to make sure that it's a one-sided story. And that was the clicking point for me when I finally had the one line that I could build the whole song upon. And that's in the, in the song Pure Evil, I say it twice in the song, I was told to tell a one-sided story. Um, and that was kind of my way to reference the conversation that I had with, he's an MC from here named Precise, really dope, really dope rhymer from Minneapolis named Precise. You know, that was my way to reference the conversation I had with Precise so that Precise would remember, it was kind of like a little subliminal shout out to him. Yes. Like he told me, I was told to tell a one-sided story, even though I took it and turned it into the cops narrative you know what I mean mm -hmm. but uh and so a year ago is when I wrote that song after me and him had had that conversation you know and I told him I was like hey I'm gonna take that line and I'm gonna go make a song off of that and he was like do it you know and I was like I so I went and did it and the, the, the great thing is a I'm glad I wrote the song it's an important song to me but also I love being able to go it's personal between me and precise and that will always be relevant mm. You know what I'm saying? Whether or not the public likes this song or appreciates it or whether it has legs, the fact that I documented a conversation that I had with Precise in a subliminal way, that's part of the personality of the song for me, even. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, that was the breaking point for that song. And it could be as simple as that. It could be as simple as I, I, I had a conversation with somebody or I, I saw a bird land on top of a Jeep. Who knows? You know what I mean? It's like... You have these songs in you, but you just don't always have all the tools to fully deliver it. But then there's that one moment that comes and you're like, okay, I got the ending to, you know, I, it's kind of like a M. Night Shyamalan Lama movies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where it's kind of like, you know, his movies are all great ideas, but you could tell by the end of it that it was like all built off of like, this, you know, he was stoned one night and had this thing. It was like, oh, now I can make that one. You know, it's kind of the same idea. What a twist. And when something like that happens, is that like a moment where you have to end the conversation and run home and start writing, or are you? Nah, not nowadays with smartphones. B, you just open up the notes app and just throw a line in there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I I do it all the time. I'll be sitting with my mom eating breakfast or something, and I'll be like, "Hey, hold up!" And I'll be in my notes writing something down. You know, it's like uh, as long as I can get the main line down, I'll remember why I wrote it. Um, two tracks: uh, "No Biggie" and "Everything." Uh, beat beat flow wise. Um, for everything, it seems like it's like a laid-back version of No Biggie. Uh, I guess regarding the concepts of these tracks, how do these two tracks work together, and, and pretty much why not make it just one long track? No Biggie came first, and at first it wasn't necessarily a setup for everything, and so it was just a little like a little one verse or song, you know what I'm saying? And I was excited about that, and then. I wrote everything pretty much immediately after. You know, all these songs came from sessions I wrote at Ant House. Um, at least the demos did. And then they get flushed out and edited whenever, wherever. But so when I wrote No Biggie, the concept of that song was it was all about getting to the punchline. Life, there's no life after death. I'm not ready to die. Where basically I namesake two Biggie albums, the only two Biggie albums. Right. Um, but really what the song is is that I am no Biggie. You know what I'm saying? People, it, it's, it's like, people put Biggie in the top five. I'll never be in the top five. I'll never be Biggie. It's okay. I'm okay with that. Especially when you consider, you know what? I can never be Biggie because I lived. Right. If, if Biggie were alive right now, he wouldn't be Biggie. You know, and, and it basically was about kind of, about how when an artist is cut short, they don't give us the opportunity to poke holes in them. They, he didn't give us a chance to watch him fall off. Right. He never gave us that fifth album where we could be like, well, Biggie lost it. And then the sixth album where we could be like, oh, he got it back. You know what I mean? It's like we didn't. So, so we put him in the top five by default when really we don't know where it would have went from there. And so those of us who are still here and still churning out album after album after album, we, we can't be Biggie. We'll never be able to top that because we're still here. You know, it's the, it's the same thing with Cobain. Cobain is hoisted up. 
because, you know, obviously his material touched a lot of people, you know, myself included. But if he was still around, would he still be Cobain or would the Foo Fighters have outdone it? Right. You know, and, and, and so then when everything came, it was like, well, this is a response to Biggie. It's like, I am no Biggie, but I'm all of this. This is all what I am. This is kind of a a what I am kind of situation. And and then, you know, Anthony and Plano Bill, the, the guy who does the majority of the scratch work on the record, they were like, how do we tie these two together? Because they got to go together. And I'm like, well, they go together conceptually, but if you guys can figure out a way to tie them together musically, go for it. I don't see it. Because Biggie, the, the no Biggie joint's really big and sense. It kind of reminds me of the Takeover, mm-hmm. the Jay Z joint. Whereas the Everything thing reminds me of a Diamond D joint. You know what I'm saying? Because it's got like a what is it, a xylophone or something? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like a, a vibraphone, a vibraphone, I think. And, and, and so, but they figured out how to tie it together using the cuts, and I was like, ah, oh, you did it. All right, fine. I'm trying to cherish life, you're trying to steer all night I want to put my DNA in your American pie There's no life after death, I'm not ready to die So is that, I mean, that's an example that you don't, you're not hearing the beat prior to writing? Oh no, no, I heard the beat prior to writing them When I wrote them, I, when I wrote No Biggie, I didn't know there was going to be a part uh, 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 I didn't know everything was going to exist I wrote No Biggie to the Beat, and then I wrote everything as a different song. But then as I'm writing it, I'm like, oh, this ties into the Biggie joint. And Ant was like, well, we'll tie it together. And I'm like, I don't see how you're going to be able to tie these two together. But they did. They were able to. In my head, they would have went separately on the record. Like, not next to each other. But when he, because of the vibes, the vibes are so different from each other that I was right. like, well, what are you, you're just like, so it's like going from fourth gear to first gear all of a sudden, you really want to do that? You know what I mean? But he was able to pull it off, which is dope to me because when you can do that and make it feel, you know, it, without making anybody jerk out of their, out of their, you know, I, I feel like that's, I feel like I'm, I'm way over explaining this and I apologize for that. So yeah. like, I, I guess ultimately to me, the two songs go together. I just didn't think they were going to be next to each other until they showed me how they could go next to each other. But to, to specifically address what you asked a second ago, yeah, all beats, I get the beat before I write. Oh, okay. Always. Um, it's really rare that I'll write much. Like, I might write a line or two because I thought about something funny or something that struck me, and I'll put those in my notes. And then they sit there in my notes. Until I and then I start listening to beats and I go, oh, I'm gonna write to this one. What does this beat feel like? What does it sound like? And then I go, oh, it sounds like that. And then I go, oh, you know what? I think I have something in my notes that's, you know, could could go with that. And then I'll go dig out the note and be like, oh, there's a line for this. Okay, cool. And then I'll flush out a song. But yeah, probably since 2005, uh, the the or actually pre 2005, but the the Mohawk record, um, you can't imagine how much fun we're having. With that record, that's when I started only writing to the beat. No more free writing. You know, back in the day, I used to just write to brand Nubian instrumentals. You know what I mean? Now, you know, ever since that Mohawk record, I only write to the beat because I'm trying to marry my concepts, my delivery, my lines to what the music says to me. You know what I mean? Like, to me, that's important now. Uh, I don't know why. It just became important to me. But it became important to me to make sure that what I'm doing doesn't like contradict what the music's doing. And is that something when you're when you talk about how, what the music's saying to you? Is that something that you and Ant are kind of talking about in terms of like, well, Ant saying, well, you know, the music is saying this to me, and you're saying, well, my lyrics are saying this to me. Is that something you guys very talk about? rarely? Sometimes, sometimes he'll even before he even plays me a beat, just so that I don't get stuck thinking something that's. Like, if he ever makes a beat where he has an actual idea for what he thinks the song should be about, he'll tell me the idea before he pushes play. Okay. He'll go, oh, this, this next one, I, I think it should have something to do with this. And I'll be like, oh, okay. That way I go into it with a picture already. And I don't always agree. You know what I mean? And it's okay, though, because we're collaborative. Like, we both trust each other's judgment, 100%. Like, right. I've, I've worked with a lot of people never so much on atmosphere records, but just in general, I've worked with a ton of producers doing guest verses and all kinds of stuff. 
And I've never met anybody who I connect with the way I connect with Anthony as far as like our trust for each other's musicality, you know? And so sometimes he will have an idea. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a song called The Last to Say on The Family Sign. It was a song about domestic abuse. And when he was going to give me the beat, he was like, hey, this is something I, he's like, this, you're going to have to really dig inside yourself. This is the, the kind of song that you got to write a song that you're not, that you, that you don't know if you're supposed to write. I was like, Oh, okay. And he played it. And I immediately was like, you know what? There's a song that I've been, been, you know, wanting to write for a long time, but I've always been weird. Am I supposed to write it or not? There it is. And there was another time before that where he played me a beat and it was called that night. And that was on the You Can't Imagine record. And that was another one where he was like, I, this is really dark, and I don't want you to just write about a relationship. I want you to really kind of reach into write something that you're scared to write, you know? Mm -hmm. And he played it for me, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, I have something to write about here that I want to write. I'm, you know, And I made that song, and we didn't even know if we were going to release it. We were just like, well, we're glad we made it. Let's put it in the vault. But we ended up releasing it, and that was a song about uh, a young woman that was raped and killed at one of our shows. Mm. And so there are times, like I say, where Anthony, he'll have maybe not necessarily the concept for the song, but he'll be like, hey, this song has to be something like this. Otherwise, you can't use it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, okay, because if you don't give it to me, he's got other rappers to give it to, you know what I mean? So if the beat's good, obviously I want it because I'm greedy and selfish. But <laughs> uh, if it strikes that spot, you know, and, and, and to say, there's, those are two examples that I just gave you. There's probably 200 examples of times where I've been like, I don't know what to write to that. It's really good, but, but I don't know if I can do what you think this beat needs. And we just keep it moving. You know, no big deal. Like, he makes tons of beats, and I have tons of ideas. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we don't really get too hung up when something's not connected. When do you know, I mean, for you, when do you know that you, like, how much time do you have to give it to you know that it's going to work or it's not going to work in terms of writing for a, a track? Oh, I know pretty much, like, in 10 minutes. Oh, it's... Yeah, it's like, if he's playing me a beat, and I sit down and start fumbling through my ideas, what does this beat say to me? If it says something to me that I'm just like, eh, I've written that song a million times, or oh, I don't know if I want to write that song, we just keep it moving, man. We just move to another beat, you know? Usually, if I sit down and flush out eight bars, then I'm going to flush out the whole song. Like, if I can get eight bars of a verse, then I'm going to make a whole song. That doesn't mean that we're going to let anybody hear the song, though. And that's kind of like one of the freedoms we have with each other. Like, we make songs, and we see these songs as songs, but that doesn't mean we show these songs to people, you know? And, and that's kind of, I guess there's a freedom in there that we have. There's a privilege there. I'm privileged to have so many beats at my disposal that I can never use some of them. You know what I'm saying? I can, I can keep some of these songs tucked away, you know? I don't know why we do i think it's just a matter of well i don't know if this is right for what we're working on i don't know if this is right for the project you know um this last year we released a bunch of lucy's that weren't right for the project that very well could have ended up being just shelved um and for all those lucy's we released there's more lucy's that we didn't release you know what i mean so it's like i don't think there's a real science behind how or what we choose other than just whatever we're both feeling and what we're both agreeing on. Is the level of satisfaction for you different if you release a song to the public versus keeping it to yourself? Hmm. I think when, uh, you know, when you're able to see public opinion about something, there's a validation there that you crave, even if it's negative, you know, you, you want to know if you were right, you know, cause it's like, for instance, uh, there's a couple of songs in the Lucy section that came out over the year where I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling this one too much. But Ant's like, no, I really am. Let's put it out. So now we get to put it out and see how the public reacts. And then we go, ah, I was right. Or, <laughs> ah, you, you, you were right. You know what I mean? And it, it works both ways. There's a, 
there's actually a couple of songs I think that were in the Lucy's that we didn't both necessarily agree on, but one of us felt so strongly about it that the other one goes, okay, I trust you. Put it out. Let's see what happens. And then, you know, it's not like we hold anything against each other when one of us goes, told you so. It's like we both have that in our nature and in our personality. So therefore, we both relate to each other on, on that level, in that plane, in that area. Um, so I want to talk about a couple more tracks on the album. Um, two, actually, two more tracks. Uh, in Chasing New York, facing ASAP Rock, uh, you, I think you do something where you talk about your relationship with New York and you need acceptance for New York. And I was wondering, is this needing acceptance, is this for you as a person or needing acceptance from New York as an artist? As an artist, as a rapper. You know, as a kid, I grew up, you know, obviously idolizing New York. For the record, I'm 43. I'll be 44 next month. So, if you go back to when I was 17, that was 1989. And in 1989, you know, New York was like, was the heartbeat you know, to this culture, you know what I'm saying? And so, 1988, 1987, you know, Rakim, KRS-One, Juice Crew, you know what I mean? Like, all yeah. this stuff was like, this was my heartbeat. So, as I got older, and was like, I have to find LL Cool J and show him my raps, you know what I'm saying? Like, I have to go to New York, and I have to I have to accomplish New York, like a, like a mountain. I gotta climb that mountain, Mount Everest in New York, you know? And uh, so that song was kind of about all of this time I spent idolizing and fetishizing New York you get out there and be like oh it's kind of like Chicago <laughs> you know what I mean like uh, not to diss New York you know but it was like I, I put it on such a pedestal that when I finally got there there was no way that it was going to be able to live up to my expectations I went out there because I wanted New York to smell and feel like the movie Wild Style right, movie right. Beat Street you know what I mean and then I got out there and it looked like Sex in the City what year did you go out? Uh, first time I got to New York was probably, I'm going to take a guess here and say 1998. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's when it, uh, yeah, that's, because I, 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 I live in New York and I grew up here. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's totally, weird. yeah, like 42nd Street became more like Disney. <laughs> You know, Dog, the trains were clean, bro. I was like, what is this shit? You know, like, the trains were clean. There's no graffiti. Very little. Some of the trains still had some graffiti on the inside. But, you know, because, dude, one of the first things I did when I got out there was get on the train and go. Take a train all the way up to the Bronx. Take a train back down, all the way down to, you know, figure it out. Take the 6. What is the 6? It's okay, the 6F. Get on that. You know what I mean? And, and through all that... It, it was good for me because it kind of, it showed me a little bit about myself as far as how I, how I had inflated this, how I, or conflated, whichever one is the correct one, how I had created this space in my head for what it was supposed to be. And I feel like that helped me moving forward from there because obviously when I got to Paris, when I got to London, when I got to Amsterdam, when I got to, you know, when I started going all these different places, uh, Tokyo, I started just going and really trying to just get my own experience of these places instead of trying to somehow extend the vicarious experience I had already had with them. You know what I mean? And I really do think that in the long run, that lesson helped me to actually gather experiences that were actually informative to me on a real level, as opposed to, like I say, just trying to have these extensions of the weird, you know, full experience that I had created in my head as a child. And from just from a, 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 a hip-hop point of view, I was curious, do you think there is the benefit of not being from New York? Because, you know, I, you, you see artists that live in New York or grew up in New York, and with their styles or creativity, they've become kind of more, I guess, complacent in that. Uh, so, so as an outsider, you have something else to, like, kind of, I guess, push for? I don't know if that makes sense. Here's Here's the thing. There's a pro and a con. Obviously, the con is being from Minneapolis, nobody in New York wanted to hear your shit. Nobody in New York, none of the labels, none of the A&R guys, there was no point in sending a demo to anybody. That was a con, but it turned out to be a pro because that was part of what inspired us to just create our own space. Uh, You know, one of the other things was the lack of ability to network with other artists. That was a con. But that also turned out to be a pro 
because once I got to New York and saw all the weird internal beefs that went on between different artists, I didn't have none of those. So I was able to be, I was like Switzerland. I was friends with everybody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, was, I would go over here and hang out with this guy. And then the next time I came out, it was okay for me to hang out with this other guy. Even though these two guys didn't like each other, nobody disliked me because I, I didn't have any sort of like back history. I didn't go to high school with any of them. I didn't sleep with anybody's girlfriends back in the day, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? So it was like, there was no pre, I, I, I should also clarify, or anybody's boyfriends. There was no, there was no pre-existing reasons to hate on me and idea. And I'm going to say idea because it was the two of us together. Right. We hit New York together. We hit LA together. We hit Tokyo together. We hit London together. You know, um, the two of us were inseparable for a long time. And we both would come in and people would show love from all sides of the, the, the ball of New York or from all sides of the ball of Los Angeles. Like Los Angeles even more so because the beefs in LA were real. Rappers hated each other out there locally. We'd get out there, and it was okay for us to kick it with the living legends. Then go over here, kick it with the Project Blow dudes. Go over here, kick it with Dilated and the ABB dudes. You know what I'm saying? It was like we didn't have any of these pre, pre-registered pre problems. To get into these crews, did you have to work extra hard to? Or... Um, the, the record preceded us, so that was helpful. But we still had to bop our way through to Coney Island. You know what I'm saying? Like There were people that were like, uh, I don't know who these dudes are. I don't know what they're about. But then once we freestyled, they're like, okay, okay, these dudes are cool. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? But we would have to prove, you know, but we were ready to do that. You know, so it wasn't like we showed up and people were like, oh, you're from Minneapolis? We love you. <laughs> you know, it was like, we'd get out there and people would be like, these dudes are from where? Okay. But the minute we grabbed the mic, and I'm not saying this to be just like a douche, but the minute we grabbed the mic, it was like, okay. You know, because... We were we were monsters. Hmm. Um, my understanding from the, uh, the the title of the album "Fishing Blues" uh, wasn't the original title of the album. Um, Correct. So, I, just looking at you know looking at all the tracks, there, there's a track on there actually called "Fishing Blues," right? Uh, yes. So was this was this track already created for the album, uh, or did you when you guys when you and Aunt actually settled on a title, did you decide that you needed to make an album title track? That track was already created, and it was just called Fishing. The funny thing about that track was that because of the beat and how kind of like West Coast funky it was, I was going to throw that at Merce and be like, hey, let's make a felt song. And uh, I, I was just going to do one verse, and I was going to have him do a verse. But then I ended up writing a second verse. And I was like, well, I guess it's an atmosphere song now. But we were like, well, it doesn't really sound like standard atmosphere music. You know what I mean? Like a lot of our music is not that lighthearted and, and upbeat. So that's when I was like, well, let's get Grouch because he's his sincerity sounds good on almost anything. You know what I mean? So we asked Grouch to do the hook. I told him it's called Fishing. He did the hook. He sent it back. We liked it. And I didn't know what to do with it. Then when this project started fully coming together, because at that time we probably only had about six or seven songs recorded, and we didn't yet know that we were making another project so soon. So we had that one, you know, then the project grew to, I don't know, 14, 15 songs. Then the project grew to 30. And that's when I was like, all right, we're making a record. Uh, we're making an album. Let's try to include fishing because I think it'd be good for us to keep some upbeat stuff on there. Cool. Cool. Then last September while shooting photos for this project, we found a canoe that somebody had put a sticker on it that said BB King's Fishing Blues. And I, w I told the photographer, uh, Dan Monick, I was like, hey, take a picture of that. That would look good on the inside of the record. So he did, and then we all kind of joked, we should just call the record BB King's Fishing Blues, <laughs> or just call it Fishing Blues, because the BB King part might be a little convoluted or a little too artsy or some shit. Uh, and it was just funny. We, we laughed about it. Then we went back to the studio to start mixing, and I told the engineer, Dylan, yeah, we might change the name of the record to Fishing Blues. And he was like, oh, that sucks. And I was like, well, it's settled. <laughs> We're calling the record. Because <laughs> the joke is with Dylan that, you know, me and Ant always joke, if Dylan don't like it, it's probably right. <laughs> I love throwing him under the bus, too. So 
Uh, just because he's fun. He picks himself up quick. But, uh, yeah, 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 way better. It worked out good. And the, the canoes are still inside of the record. So if you look in the record, you'll still see this picture of these stacked canoes. And if you look close, one of them says BB King's Fishing Blues. Right. Uh, the new album is uh, Fishing Blues. Uh... Uh, slug from Atmosphere. Thank you so much, man. I, I know it took up a lot of your time today, but thank you so much for joining me in the library with Tim Ryan and Kel on RapStation.com. Hey, man, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to reach out and talk. And uh, good, man, good. I, I like, like, really, I appreciate it. It, it, it means a lot that, that people still want to talk to us after all these years. <laughs> Everything looks clear in hindsight If you can adjust to the twilight Trying to live enough life to last a lifetime Roll with the ride like I'm supposed to survive How you know that you alive If you ain't fighting for a mouthful of future This ain't business as usual Check the tackle, box full of beautiful Look like shrapnel Break the cycle and the old mistakes But the boat obeys the waves And then the little fish spoke as it broke away It said no limits, but no with a K Yesterday's catch a cook tomorrow Right now I gotta do what I gotta Took a time out from the human drama Put my line in the water Now who wanna holler? Just like an answer calling When I drop this line in the water Keep fishing, man, with a vision Look, brother, I saw the future Look past, I'll draw it for you Strong words of an old soul Don't rock my boat, I told them Reel them in, throw back slow just like an answer calling when I drop this line in the water. Keep fishing, man, with a vision. Look, brother, I saw the future. Look past, I'll draw it for you. Strong words of an old soul. Don't rock my boat, I told them. Reel them in, throw back slow. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.